Welcome to episode 61, What Every Therapist Needs to Know, Lessons from the Research, featuring Dr. Scott D. Miller, licensed clinical psychologist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. I'm very excited today to have Dr. Scott Miller here to speak to us about deliberate practice and feedback-informed treatment. Uh, Dr. Miller is a licensed clinical psychologist and the co-founder of the International Center for Clinical Excellence. He is invited faculty of the Evolutions of Psychotherapy Conference, and he directs programs based in deliberate practice in a number of different countries. Uh, Scott, thank you for your time today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do what you're doing. Well, thanks for those kind words and introduction. I, I am the director of the International Center for Clinical Excellence and been doing that since about 2009. Much of my life has been spent in research, but that's largely because I've always been puzzled about this activity we're all doing called psychotherapy. And for me, it never came naturally. It's always been a struggle. Others in Graduate school seemed to grasp much more quickly what it was about. I, by contrast, was racked with anxiety, worried about every move I made that it might hurt rather than help. And so not only did I spend lots of time working with clients, but also a fair bit looking at and reading the research and discussing with colleagues and mostly writing about the dilemmas that I was facing in, in trying to understand what we could all do to, to be helpful to people. How interesting. So for you, this is very, very personal. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what motivates me. I'd like to say there's some big, stronger idealistic purpose, but it's been entirely selfish motivated, I motivated by really trying to understand what this activity therapy is all about and how I could do it better so that I'd help more people in the process. We're grateful for all that you have done and the research that you have brought to the table. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the research on this particular topic? You know, what, what separates really great therapists from regular therapists, I should say? Yeah. Well, if you, if you go back 100 years in our profession, the assumption has always been that what leads to expertise in psychotherapy is training in particular models. And we can look at that from the time of Freud all the way forward to our, our present day. And the assumption is if I learn to master the use of a particular treatment approach and apply it to the right problem, then my clients will get better. The, the problem with that, of course, is that there's virtually no research evidence that certain models are more effective than others. In fact, they all seem to work about equally well for the same variety of treatment conditions. And that can sound a bit heretical and people are adamant that their particular method is better, particularly if they narrow it to a group of clients who share a identified problem. But very a great deal and very sophisticated research analyses have been done comparing treatment approaches head to head for a variety of conditions and, and find no difference. This leaves us in a dilemma about, well, how do we get better? So a next iteration of that in our field was to use peer nomination. The way we know the best therapists is that they're respected by their colleagues. And 
then we could look at what qualities they all seem to share. The problem is that peer nomination doesn't seem to necessarily predict outcomes. And secondly, whatever qualities the field is identified as and associated with superior performance are either so banal as to not distinguish effective from uh, ineffective therapists, or it's impossible to train people in them. So for a long time, our field has really been stuck. Uh, and the assumption has been always that our progress, we continue to make progress, that our field is becoming more effective. I've searched and searched for evidence of this. I did a paper about five years ago where I looked at all the data and I can't see any evidence actually that outcomes have, uh, have improved, uh, nor really that we're reaching more people and certainly no evidence that uh, our methods are engendering better outcomes for our clients. At the same time, throughout this entire period uh, of development, last hundred years, it's very clear two things. Number one, most therapists believe that certain therapists are more effective than others. It's not something that we say out loud to each other, but we secretly believe it. We don't just send our family members, for example, to whomever. We instead do a lot of careful research to, in the hopes that we can find the right person with the right stuff. Uh, and secondly, since the 1970s and 80s, really, we've also had empirical evidence that certain therapists are actually measurably more effective than others. But we haven't really known what it is that accounts for that difference. In 1974, a paper was published by David F. Ricks that identified this group of therapists and called them super shrinks. These were people who had demonstrably better results with their clients. 30 years would pass before a second, even more sophisticated article uh, was published, made possible by the advent of data collection by computers by Michael Lambert. Again, the paper says it's clear that certain therapists are more effective than others. And you may ask, well, how much more effective? Well, a therapist, a client who sees one of those folks might experience as much as 50% more improvement or be 10 times more likely to improve when seeing that particular therapist. So we're not talking about inconsequential differences here, but really major, large uh, differences in terms of impact. But sadly, he concluded that particular paper by saying something, I'm paraphrasing here, we have no idea what, 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 what that's, what, why that happens, why certain therapists are more effective than others. Our team back in, 2007 was struggling with the same phenomenon. We we developed a couple of measurement tools, the ORS and the SRS. The latter measures alliance, the former measures progress. And we were encouraging therapists to begin to measure their outcomes, mostly because at least then they would be able to identify and separate those they were helping from those they weren't, and then perhaps target the clients for something different well, when the therapist wasn't being helpful. Over time, we started aggregating data, and once again, we saw this pattern. Certain therapists, year after year, returned better outcomes than others. We had no idea why that was. And for a while, I honestly thought it was just some random variance, you know, like stocks. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. Uh, in general, it's good to invest, but if you think you have some stock tip uh, that's going to make you rich, the chances are it can, uh, it, it, it can equally make you poor. 
but the pattern persisted. And I was on an airplane uh, where I spend a lot of my time, given that I travel and teach a lot. And I came across an article in a mag in Fortune magazine by Jeff Colvin, who is the editor uh, at that time, at least he was of that magazine. And he was interviewing a man named Anders Ericsson, who's a Swedish psychologist. And he's spent his entire career studying expertise, but not in our field, in, in other fields, with the exact same question. Why is it that some performers within a given domain achieve superior results? And his research is pretty astonishing. And as I'm reading it, I'm, uh, I'm recognizing the, the answer to the question we've long had which is why are some better than others? And it didn't matter if you were a computer programmer or a history teacher or a surgeon. The answer was top performers spent more time in an activity called deliberate practice, which was spending time working at the edge of your ability in an attempt to improve that performance. And Frequently, the way you found your performance edge was by looking at your errors and mistakes. In, in our field, for example, that would be when we have an alliance rupture or when the clients deteriorate while in our care, when they drop out, or when we simply don't help them, their outcomes don't improve. All can be clues to our particular performance edge. I went back to my team, I talked about this article, passed it around, and we began interviewing therapists around the world, asking them about their experience. And it appeared as though Anders Ericsson's work held true in our field. Uh, my colleague, Daryl Chow, decided to do the first study where clinicians tracked how they spent their time outside of their therapy sessions. What did they do? And it turned out that when we co correlated that with outcome, top performers spent approximately two and a half times as much time in deliberate practice than average performers and about 14 times as much time than the worst performers in our sample. What's really interesting about this, or at least I find it interesting, is the least effective therapists thought they were as, as effective as the most effective therapists in the sample. And yet the difference between them is staggering. And what accounts for that is this extra therapeutic time, time spent outside of therapy, working at the edge of what you're currently capable of doing. For a therapist, what does that look like? What does that mean if we're considering, say, a basketball player, and that means time spent on the court, time spent conditioning, maybe at the gym, working with a personal trainer, uh, maybe learning different flexibility. For a therapist, how do we use this time outside of therapy to develop these skills? Well, we did a survey in that original study where we asked therapists exactly what they did, attend supervision, talk about difficult cases with their peers, uh, read a book, read a paper, and the answer is all of the above. The problem here is that in order to get better, it's not so much the activity you engage in, but whether that activity facilitates improvement at your growth edge. So for example, you may find that you have a recurring error, uh, not a one-off, but a recurring error in your alliance formation with 
angry clients. The only way to get at that is to begin measuring and monitoring your performance so that we can then look at the data and identify those shortcomings. Once you identify that particular error uh, and recurring error, then you have to, just like a basketball player, get a coach who knows how to develop practice activities specific to improving that particular area. So you might want to pick out somebody who is an expert in managing clients' anger or in empathy, develop some exercises, review video uh, on, on that uh, subject, and then you're going to rehearse it again and again and again. And return back to the coach with additional measures, measurement of your, of your work, uh, to see if there's been any improvement in what remains to be done. That's fascinating. And from what you're saying, therapists are pretty terrible at evaluating our own effectiveness. And you're asking therapists really to do something that is completely outside of the way that they think. If, if we are often thinking, okay, we, we get trained in dialectical behavior therapy or motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy, we implement that and then we'll be effective. You're saying, no, we have to go back to the table and consistently be working at the edge of our skills and finding errors, continue refining them. How, how do we address this as a field when there's this mismatch between how good we think we are and how good we actually are? Well, that's, I think that's a really big question. How, how, how do we do that? And I tell you, the allure of models and training and approaches is so great that uh, I think deliberate practice may end up either A, a well-kept secret of those who excel, or B, it will be integrated into the way we think already, which will be very sad. And that, by the way, is already happening. I've heard of a new series of books that's being edited that will apply the idea of deliberate practice, which isn't very difficult to wrap your head around. Everybody's been told from the time they're little, whether learning to play the guitar or uh, mastering the jump shot, that uh, practice makes perfect. You have to practice. So there's nothing really new in that. The question that's important and you highlight is, well, what to practice? And you may have a weakness in your application of structure with your clients that would be helped by learning a particular way of doing treatment. But the chances of that are relatively slim, actually, since 99% of therapist training is about treatment models and treatment protocols. It's much more likely that factors outside of models are going to be where you find your biggest errors. What are those factors? creation of hope and expectancy, the therapeutic relationship, capitalizing on extra therapeutic events. These are the areas where many of us can miss, mostly because they account for a far larger portion of the variability in outcomes than treatment models. And I'll tell you what that proportion of the variance is, 1%. So we spend 99% of our time learning to do models. They account for a paltry 1% of the variability in treatment outcomes. Relationship, by contrast, contributes 8 to 12 times more to the variance. And yet, most of us get uh, meager training in that particular area as compared to treatment models. But even that, I'm not suggesting that what you need to do is go out and take a workshop on empathy. That replicates this mindset that uh, generic skills are what will improve your individual performance. To move 
further than where you are right now, we need to identify your performance edge, what researchers call the zone of proximal development, where what you do reliably most days begins to break down. Identify those errors, get a coach, develop activities that will help you flex that muscle or work that muscle over and over, measure, reevaluate, and continue training. For the therapists who have high outcomes, do they stay at high outcomes because they continue being deliberate or do they basically achieve a high outcome and then don't have to be as deliberate in continuing to hone their craft? Well, I'm speaking at a theoretical level now, but I, I believe personally looking at the data that the, that the universe, that like the universe, we clinicians only do one of two things. We expand or contract. That's it. So therapists who are very good at what they do tend to get better and better results precisely because they continue to outpractice the rest of us. And it's for very real reasons why most of us don't, why most of us develop sufficient outcomes rather than excellent outcomes. It's the same in all areas of life. Think about driving. Most of us learn enough about driving to become proficient at it, not experts at it. And for most points and purposes, that's, that's sufficient to be proficient. In our work with clients, however, you wonder, should that be sufficient? And the, I think, paradox here is that therapists think they're getting better. If you ask clinicians how well they do, they overestimate their effectiveness on average by 65%. They also think they're growing continually, even though the data say actually most therapists on average decline in effectiveness over time. It's hard to believe that, but the reason is more experience leads to the routinization of behavior. Things become automatic. Once they're automatic, we're no longer conscious of them, and therefore we don't, we don't really grow. The allure of treatment models, I think, is, is it promises a shortcut. This technique will make you more therapeutic. And I can just tell you, we've looked at it. It won't make you more therapeutic. You can become that. What's, what's required is hard work by a deliberate practice. Find that performance edge, your recurring errors, and work that edge. So when it comes to evaluating our errors, this is an entire paradigm shift for listeners that have never thought of therapy this way. That I think a lot of us, absolutely, we went to school, we learned different theoretical orientations, we found one that worked for us, and then we stuck with it. We said, okay, I'm going to work with anxiety disorders, or I love working with couples, and we stay in our corner. For the therapists that have never integrated what you're talking about, how do they start being more deliberate and identifying those blind spots? Well, I think the process best starts with beginning to measure your results, incorporating some type of routine outcome tools into your practice. And you can get, for example, our simple tools for free on my website at scottdmiller.com. Again, the ORS and the SRS, the outcome and the session rating scales. Administering those to the client and aggregating the data over time. So again, we're not looking for how well, in this case, you responded to the individual client, which is important. But we're trying to move beyond simple responsiveness to the idiosyncrasies 
and individual characteristics of, of our clients to more general patterns and errors in our performance. So everybody has an off day. Everybody has a client they don't connect with. One client is not a pattern make. I have to look for not, I have to look for recurring errors or non-random errors in my performance. That means I have to have administered the scales, aggregated the data, and look more broadly at that performance. Let me give you an example of this. We know, for example, again, somewhat paradoxically, that therapists who get negative feedback, that is their clients are less satisfied with them and their alliance abilities early on, have better outcomes if the client stays with them in treatment. What most of us try to do, especially in the beginning, is ensure that the client has no complaints about us. And if they, and so here we're saying something quite opposite. We know that top performing therapists get more negative feedback in the beginning, which allows them, of course, to adjust, make minor adjustments, which keeps the, uh, keeps the client engaged and improves their engagement over time. If you find that when you're using the SRS, which is our alliance tool, you end up with a lot of high scores, which is what clinicians routinely say, and I meet them on the road after they've tried, and they say, oh, I've used that ORS and SRS, but the SRS doesn't really work. I ask them, well, why is that? Well, I'll, the client doesn't tell me the truth. I say, what do you mean? They never, they're always saying it's perfect. And I say, the client's telling you the truth. They're just telling you they can't tell you what you need to change. And being able to administer that scale in a way that invites the early criticism that's associated with better outcomes over time is something therapists can deliberately practice. But the only way you're going to know that is by administering a scale and seeing the pattern in the aggregate. That's very, very interesting. So for these therapists that are deliberately seeking feedback, are they then more likely to get feedback that allows them to correct? They'll keep people in treatment so we're not seeing premature dropouts. And then there'll be higher outcomes for those therapists with those clients. In part. In part, the better outcomes are associated with um, less, fewer dropouts. Uh, but also when clients, when you complain and somebody, somebody, well, first off, when you feel safe to complain, you often form a stronger bond with the person you're complaining to, especially if they react in a way that solves what you're complaining about. So twofold, I want to get the, create an atmosphere where the client can say, you know, I wish we would have talked more about this or done that. I wish you hadn't said that to me or in that particular way. And the therapist addresses that. Those clients form stronger bonds and as a result are more engaged in the work and as a result of their engagement have better outcomes by, by, the, end of, by the end of treatment. But again, I think that's something that people think should be natural. After all, we're in the business of having relationships with people, but what we found is not natural at all. And this is just one small illustration of how using the measures can point to a recurring error on the therapist's part. When it comes to identifying that specific error, you had given the example of someone who has difficulty, they identify difficulty working with clients that struggle with anger issues. So they could compile their... SRS and ORS data and say, okay, these particular clients, you know, I believe I'm struggling with, 
how do we really narrow it down to that client base? You know, to say, oh, it is a client with anger issues, or I tend to struggle with children the ages, you know, between the ages of eight and thirteen. So we're looking at very specific variables within the the ORS and SRS. How do you zoom into that to identify where that weak spot is? Well, there are a couple of things you can do. If you're using the ORS and SRS, then you'd want to use one of the available data aggregation systems. That sounds very complicated, but really all it means is that you're using software to administer score and uh, to, to aggregate, the, uh, aggregate the data. Then you're going to get a, a, a 10 or 20 different metrics. One of those metrics, for example, is your effect size. How effective are you? If you have a sufficient number of cases, you can begin to break them into different age groups. Age is a relevant variable on which therapists can differ in terms of their effectiveness. You can compare your effectiveness with 18 and above and 18 and lower. You can also do that with, with gender uh, identification, uh, problem type, uh, a host, an infinite number of variables. And often using your intuition can be a good guide uh, to this. You may have a sense that, oh, you know, I just don't really connect with children or when the couple's in the room, it's a lot different than when it's one person. Well, then look at the data and see if that's true. Only one of two things can happen. You can either find out you were wrong, which hooray, or you find out that your hunch was, was accurate. And much of these kinds of distinctions that we can draw in, in the uh, data that accumulates about our work by the use of outcome measures on a routine basis we talk about in a book that's coming out from APA uh, called Better Results, Using Deliberate Practice to Improve Your Therapeutic Effectiveness. It's going to be out hopefully in January or February of next year. It's on the publisher's desk. But there really are an infinite number of ways you can dice and uh, slice the data looking for, looking for errors. One way to find out if you have difficulty with certain clients in terms of relationship formation is to look at certain items on the SRS in the aggregate. So for example, the item that says, I felt heard and understood and accepted by my therapist versus I didn't. So it may, the computer systems make that very easy uh, to, to look at. One of the norms in therapy is that sometimes we're going to say things or, or challenge clients, if you will, or gently confront, depending on how you want to say it. We may bring up patterns mm. that occasionally are not going to necessarily be comfortable for our clients. When you look at the data for the high achieving therapists, are they able to have those challenges and then recover from them? So you basically see a dip in a couple of sessions and then they get back up. Or is there this consistency that, that the higher performers, you don't see much of a dip. And even though they might've brought up a topic or an interaction or situation that was difficult for the client, they bounce back more quickly. If I work with a client and something happens and the SRS suffers, the question in my mind is always is, is it a one-off, a random event, or is it a recurring pattern? The only way I can know that is to step back out and look at the data in total to see, to, to see if there's a pattern where when I confront uh, my client relationships and outcomes suffer. If they, if, the, if they do suffer when I do the confrontation, well, that's an edge of my deliberate practice effort because it doesn't it doesn't matter if I think it's therapeutically right if it's therapeutically harmful 
uh, it doesn't matter if you did the right thing and it did and it didn't help at the moment uh, i don't know that i can parse and say that that uh, top performers have one pattern or the next what i can say is what they're going to be interested in is when their data fall shows them where they fall short that's the difference difference in it. They're always looking for those shortcomings. Whereas I think average practitioners have the opposite idea. I want to, I want to get those scores higher. Interestingly enough, the top performers are, are energized when they can see those errors uh, and those deficits because it points exactly to where they need to do their work. So there's a whole attitude difference. Top performers interested in learning. Average performers much more caught up in performing. Which, by the way, is a word I apply to, to what therapists routinely call their clinical practice. I think it's time to change that word. When you're meeting with your clients, you're not practicing. You're performing therapy. Practice is what you do after you meet with your clients following reflection or before you meet with your clients following a review of what you've done in the past. I thought your point about you know, us being aware of our blind spots, you know, we probably know where they are. I can see even in my own work, the overlap with countertransference. that when you walk out of a session and want to take a shower, or you're all riled up, I think it points to one of those weak spots and having to evaluate what just happened, because it doesn't feel good anymore. It didn't, you know, if even a therapist is walking away saying, Ugh, what happened in the room? Um, and it sounds like the research you're saying is pretty consistent with that and us paying more attention even to our own feelings about it in addition to seeking feedback from the clients. What, what, I, what I would say, Elizabeth, is that that's an empirical question, that you don't just have to rely on your feelings. I think your feelings can be a guide, but they need to be confirmed by the data. And I don't have exact figures here. Uh, but I would say, since you don't have much other data to go on, other than when you're starting to decide to how to parse the data and look for patterns, you can certainly ask yourself, where do I think my weak spots are? But I wouldn't rely on those exclusively or to the exclusion of, of measured outcomes. And I think this is an interesting sort of dilemma because therapists, were, they are in the story, the feeling and relationship business. And adding outcome measures is something that takes uh, a bit of doing in order to get used to, um, to integrate it into your, into your work. And in fact, I can tell you, we have a brand new study just came out uh, in, uh, I guess it was last year, uh, Norwegian psychologist named Heidi Bratlam. And Heidi found actually that simply implementing the outcome tools in routine care uh, took about three years. So it seems like a simple process. I'm going to download these scales. I'm going to, I'm going to integrate. They'll start using them. But uh, the scales often point in directions that are counterintuitive and disconfirming. They open up questions. They don't answer them. That's very interesting. Um, for listeners who have never used FIT before and are just learning about what it means to do this in a different way, to consider treatment, conceptualize therapeutic effectiveness in a different way. It seems like kind of the introduction would be a reflection in 
you know, that weird feeling that you have with that one client or how you always get really tired in the middle of those sessions. It's like, yeah, we can, we can make that better. It can be a way to zoom in on that blind spot and say, yes, we could actually quantify this. We can measure it. And then we could even better do something to address it. So the next time that that happens, which it may be years from now, when we've when you've basically treated these blind spots, we can improve our effectiveness and be better for the next client or for the next time it happens with that same client. I think that's something that's really easy to connect with from a therapeutic perspective. Um, It's something we can, we can do something about it. It doesn't just have to be that thing we're bad at. You know, at the the same time, you know, that therapists are, uh, it's going to take time to get used to the outcome measures. It's not the only way to gather data. So in the Better Results book, we also talk about creating what we call the therapist black box. You know, the black box on the airplane is that device that records all the movements the pilots make, the functioning of the various systems on an airplane. And so we suggest the same for therapists, that at the end of each day, they simply write a Twitter-length note to themselves. One error they made during the day, one thing that went well during the day. Write it on a post-it note, stick it in the black box, and let those notes accumulate a couple of months. By that time, you're going to have 90 such notes for, for an error and 90 such notes for something you did that worked well. After 90 days, you take them out of the box and you start to look for patterns recurring themes. You're separating the one-offs, the random errors, from the non-random errors. And then on my website and in the book, we also make available a tool called the TDPA, or the Taxonomy of Deliberate Practice. So let's go back and just recap what we've done. We've been gathering a statement at the end of each day. One error I made, one thing that went well. I've got a bunch of those and I've started looking for themes. Now I have to have a way of organizing them because it's not enough just to know where my errors are. I have to work on areas in my my therapeutic practice that have leverage in terms of outcome. So I need to categorize them according to the factors that influence outcome. And that's what the TDPA helps you do. It takes your list of errors once you've organized it into themes and it connects them with the factors that influence outcomes. What do you want to do as a busy professional? You don't want to be constantly shooting in the dark. You don't want to do one-off supervision for one client. If you really want to improve your outcomes, you want to find those recurring errors that are going to result in scaling your outcomes in a dramatic way across many clients. So you take those themes and you fit them into the TDPA, identify where you're working on a particular error is going to have a lot of therapeutic leverage. That document then helps you pick one area as well as think it through some activities that can uh, be practiced in order to improve. Again, it's called the TDPA or the Taxonomy of Deliberate Practice. And you can get it on my website for free. There's not only a version for therapists, but if you're working with a supervisor who knows about deliberate practice, There's a supervisor's or what I prefer to call a coach's version uh, that can, that the coach can use in their assessment and development of activities uh, designed to help you improve what's at your performance edge. 
I love the idea of reviewing it as a black box and using that as an opportunity for us to slow down, be more reflective about what we're doing and then respond appropriately. Is this introduction of the TDPA, is this effectively, it sounds like an evidence-based practice that therapists could be doing alongside any empirical model that they may or may not already be using to really zero in on the areas they want to build out and need to be then directing time and energy toward improving that skill set? Well, that's an interesting question, and, and I hope I'm not opening a can of worms here. So if I go off in a direction that you, you don't find useful, then say, I have only one objection to the last thing you said. Are you ready to hear it? I am. It's a two-letter word that was inserted before the words evidence-based practice, and that two-letter word is and. That, that construction is this an, an evidence-based practice versus is this evidence-based practice points in two very different directions. And I believe that the field, given how beholden we are to treatment models and embedded within a medical paradigm, frequently talk about evidence-based practice as if it is a noun. Something literally, by definition, I should be able to pull off the shelf and with sufficient training and following the protocol, administer to get superior results. And as I said, I defy people to show me evidence that doing that improves your outcomes. I just don't see much evidence of that. But more, and I think this is the big key, the definition of evidence-based practice doesn't look like a noun at all. It's all a verb. Evidence-based practice is the integration, this is the official definition, 2006 APA definition, the integration of the best available research with clinical expertise in the context of patient culture and preferences. So when, when you're doing the TEPA and you're working at your performance edge and you are measuring your results and using that to identify weaknesses that you can then work on, you are engaged in evidence-based practice, verb. And that is a, it's a very nice fit with not only APA's official definition, but with deliberate practice. I'm very glad you brought up that distinction. And I, in my own practice, love the overlap of feedback-informed treatment. And I think you point out something that is very common that we see. We have the medical model or even clients calling up saying, do you do CBT? I've yeah. been told I need CBT. Yeah. And it effectively makes almost everything else. If it doesn't have the term, you know, an evidence-based practice yeah. ahead of it, then it's like, oh, then what is that that you're doing? What, you know, what is, what is this magic, um, this intuition, quote unquote, that you're using? And what you're saying is, no, it's actually encapsulating all of it is what we're doing therapeutic. Is it in the direction of change and improvement? Does and I'm glad you went client. down that yeah. rabbit hole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Does it fit your client? So it's this active process. But our shorthand way of thinking about it, and again, our being embedded, I think, in this medical perspective is it treats psychotherapy and different models of psychotherapy like they're the equivalent of an antibiotic. You just got to find the right one for your disease. And I, again, I have to say, I don't see any evidence of that. Generally, when people say this model is evidence-based, what they mean by it, although what it implies is something different, what they mean by it is 
there's evidence that this model helps. Well, let me tell you, there's, there's virtually any model that's been tested helps. So that's not a very important distinction, really, that there's evidence. Because if your model doesn't help your client, who cares if it's evidence-based? Then the question is, what do I need to do to help that particular client? Is it because I'm held back by some random or, or some non-random error in my clinical, in clinical work? Do I need to learn to be more responsive to this individual client by using outcome tools? Uh, in the moment to adjust the work that I'm doing with that particular person. It's interesting because one of the things that I see a lot is a discussion of, of basically, do we have a fundamental enough knowledge of a client's presenting issue to be able to work with them competently? So for example, I've seen and talked with therapists before that say, unless you're trained in XYZ EBP, mm. you shouldn't work with severe trauma. Mm. What does your research say about that? The, what, what you've seen of this idea of basically, unless you have extensive training in a certain model, then you should stay away from uh, eating disorders. You should stay away from substance addiction. You should stay away from trauma. Obviously, knowing that there is a minimum amount of knowledge regarding safety. But beyond that, is it really about these therapists that are working at the edge and has nothing to do with evidence-based practice, or I should say, and evidence-based well, practice? I, you know, what I say to that is show me the evidence. You know, competence killed the first president of the United States. So the current definition is uh, uh, APA's standard 2.01 of care is that you practice within the boundaries and limits of your competence according to your education and training. Well, that's exactly what killed George Washington. Why? Because after he fell ill on a December morning, I think in 1799, he uh, physicians were summoned to the house and administered the standard of care of the day. When the results weren't forthcoming, they did it two more times. They actually conferred with one another, multiple physicians and then administered the standard of the care. You know what that was, it was bloodletting. And now we all scoff at it, but according to the standard, they were practicing competently. That's, it's, it's not satisfying to me that uh, to stand back and say, you can be competent in exclusion to outcome. You have to have both parts. And if you have the outcome, then who cares whether you were competently administering a given method or not? I, th I think that's a fascinating example. And I, I think the example about antibiotics too is a great one. The idea that these things work for some people some of the time, I think in a lot of ways is kind of mind bending for mm -hmm. a lot of clinicians to wrap around that. Um, and it goes back to what you were saying about a, a, the assessment of our own effectiveness and how good we are at actually evaluating our own effectiveness. And let me say, just for the sake of discussion, Elizabeth, or acknowledge, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't go learn about trauma. Our field ignored it for a hundred years uh, for a variety of reasons. It, it ignored it. Uh, it. We thought the stories were too fantastical to believe in some way. Uh, I'm not suggesting that, but it's hubris on the part of those who are, are, are promulgating these models to say you are incompetent or you can't possibly help without that training. That is simply untrue.
it's very interesting how feedback informed treatment kind of wraps itself around these other models and almost kind of stands in the face of it and also invites them in at the same time. Hmm. Using deliberate practice and feedback informed treatment for our listeners, what are some ways that that people can use evidence-based practices or just evidence-based practice in general based on your research to improve their outcomes? What so, are kind of the takeaways? I, I tell therapists uh, because the whole system is set up to think about the service we provide in a very specific way. Why would you assume that attending a continuing education training or a, uh, a, a training in a specific treatment modality is going to improve your outcomes? Why would you assume that? because it can just as equally make you worse, especially if you're already pretty good. Think about that for a second. If you're already really good, if you have no idea what your outcomes are and you're already really good by, uh, by, for whatever reason, changing what you do could in fact impact your outcomes negatively. So I say to people, before you sign up for any new approach, why don't you begin measuring your outcomes? That's step one. Begin measuring and see. And while you might be nervous about that, let me reassure most therapists. And this is what gives me hope about our field. You know, ideologically, we're hopelessly divided, but our outcomes aren't, Elizabeth. When we look at how effective therapists are, and I, you can't see me right now, but it makes the hair on my arm stand up. It gives me chills. The average effect size in psycho, psychotherapy worldwide, we have thousands and thousands of therapists who've administered the measures to millions of clients now. Average effect size of 0.76. That's the same effect size that you see in tightly controlled randomized trials of so-called empirically supported treatments. So therapists are already doing good work. So if you're worried you're going to find out you're not any good, that worry may actually be what makes you more effective. Because we found therapists who are less certain, more humble about the work that they do, are more likely to be at their learning edge. So begin to measure, look at your results, and then aggregate that data over time. That's step two. And begin to look for weaknesses. Don't do this alone. Do it with others. We have a community called the International Center for Clinical Excellence that you mentioned earlier. It's a free social network you can join centerforclinicalexcellence.com. There are no costs. There are no ads. You just join, create an avatar, and participate in the conversation. You can ask questions of clinicians doing this around the whole world. Get some community support. Once you identify those errors, uh, whether you're using the black box method or the data aggregation we talked, spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about, uh, access the, TD, the TDPA. And then Look for a coach and find somebody who can coach to that specific, uh, that specific shortcoming. What I guess I'm trying to say here is, is that most therapists are already performing at, maybe there's a bit of hyperbole here, an Olympic level. So doing something that changes your whole practice is silliness because you're already mostly doing well. And we know that Olympic athletes, in order to achieve just a little bit better, than what they did last time, have to engage in a lot more hard work, that deliberate practice effort. So you're looking for something small and the 
improvements are likely to accrue over time, not in the short run. And in fact, that's exactly what we found. The study that was led by Simon Goldberg that you can find on my website found that the combination of monitoring your outcomes, looking for errors, and engaging in reflection and then deliberate practice aimed at re re uh, remediation of your errors reverses the trend we see otherwise, which is a slow downward uh, decline of therapist outcomes. It reverses it, and therapists begin to make slow, gradual improvements over time. So whether you're doing an evidence-based practice, I, I don't even like to use that word, whether you're doing it, what, what the APA calls an empirically supported treatment, I think language is important, and I think it's time we insist that people use the language that is appropriate. If you want to call your treatment empirically supported, that's perfectly fine. Calling an evidence-based practice muddies the water because it's not. That's not what APA's definition is, not what the World Health uh, Organization You, Whether you're doing one of these standardized protocols or not, you can engage in, in all of this. You can measure your outcomes. Because as I said earlier, what client cares if they're not being helped by you that your treatment approach you supposedly use is, is empirically supported? They don't care. That They really want to feel better and to get better. And in order to do that, as I said, that means me looking more closely at myself and at least ruling out the possibility that there might be some recurring error in how I'm approaching people. I like breaking it down between the difference of what the APA's definition is and then looking at it through the lens of a manualized mm -hmm. practice. So what does it mean to be operating within this certain framework that you, you implement certain worksheets or whatever it is at a certain amount of time, or you use different group methods, that this is something separate than what you're talking about, which for the purposes of our listeners today is the importance of measuring outcomes, aggregating the data, and then seeking supervision and coaching to work on the edge of your capability to further build mm -hmm. it out. And that by implementing that, regardless of what method, quote unquote, you might be adhering to you're still going to be even better than you are. Yeah, and that's the key. It's not about being the best therapist amongst therapists. It, it really is about asking, are you satisfied with being the same as you were last year, helping the same kinds of people? And I can tell you, even though therapists say, oh, we want to be good enough, the truth is the evidence suggests therapists want to be better. When we look, for example, at uh, the work by Rinnestad Norlinsky about how therapists develop, Having a sense of professional development is, is essential to therapist's identity. And also, it is an antidote to burnout. It's such an important experience that I'm getting better that therapists, I think, are tempted to invent a sense that I'm getting better. Because as I say, most of us think we are. And clearly, I, I, I'm smoother at what I do some 35 years later. Uh, in, in, in this field as a, as a, as a therapist. Uh, but my outcomes, that's the question. Are they actually any better? So let me ask you, if you don't mind, if I go behind the yeah. curtain, you've done this research, you've spent an extraordinary amount of time looking at all of this information. How has this affected your practice in, in what you do on the day-to-day? -day? Well, the first, the first thing it did and I appreciate this question, is it legitimized my fears. I, I often felt inadequate. 
I felt inadequate all the time, I'll say, uh, as, as a graduate student. Now I feel inadequate, and it's good. <laughs> it's a good thing, because I know that means I'm working hard at avoiding automaticity, that I might be, I'm, do, I'm acting without thinking. Uh, that's just the nature. So it, it's I, the first thing I think it did was legitimize my fears and actually make them into a plus. The, the second thing is that it's improved my results. Not only as a therapist, but uh, in the writing that I do, because we're applying the same principles there. Hopefully people would agree that when they see me present, uh, they, they believe uh, that, that uh, I'm communicating uh, more effectively, perhaps, than another time they've seen me. So it's, it's, it's having an impact. Um, and, and then, yeah, I, I would say that's, those are the two main things. What you're talking about is leaning into discomfort, mm. both from a presenting standpoint and also from a therapeutic standpoint, that if we can lean into it, we can use a black box method and uncover where those errors are and then address them. Mm. That also requires a lot of ego integrity. <laughs> I think, you know, for us to do the same with clients, we're, we're having to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, where am I not doing well? What am I going to do about it? Um, I, I know even for myself, that's, that has been this continuing commitment to growth, but it's also uncomfortable. And I imagine it was uncomfortable for you, though comforting, it was still uncomfortable on some level. Yeah, I think it is uncomfortable. It would be nice to, it would be nice to have a sense of, of, of arriving. And that doesn't mean, for example, that I don't feel confident about certain aspects, but I'm also suspicious of that. Um, it makes me worried when when I'm when when I'm not thinking and reflecting on on the work that that I'm doing, whether that's a presentation or writing or or seeing 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 clients uh, in my work. So yeah, um, lean in. I think that's an interesting idea, and lean into the discomfort. Also, an, another interesting idea. Is it hard on the ego? You know, people routinely say that that it that it is but i have to tell you i trade that feeling willingly for more satisfied clients so for me it's not an either or it's like this balance yes i'm, I'm paying a price but i i just take it just gives me joy to see the results and this is essentially what Olympic athletes report, you know, but why do people, why? I mean, you think of these athletes, why would they spend so much time so that they can hop over a bar one half centimeter higher than the last person? Why would they do that? And when you ask them, they say, because it was a goal, you know, because it, it showed that they had somehow improved. So the improvement piece somehow uh, the process of improving uh, is is re is rewarding enough to pay off. Uh, is a rewarding enough payoff for all the effort. I think that's a great point, and we're not talking about getting half a centimeter higher over a bar. We're talking about people's life satisfaction and their safety. Mm -hmm. And I think there's basically an ethical backbone to this too, which is we need to be what I call wide awake at the wheel. We need to be very reflective about what we're doing and not rely on 
past experience as the sole guide for future behavior. Mm. That we we all would want our practitioners, whether those are medical practitioners or therapists or whoever it is treating ourselves or our families, to be stopping and asking themselves, is this working? Mm. And if it's not, what am I doing about it? Mm. And I think it I think it is a really beautiful contribution then to a client to say, I'm going to walk into the uncomfortable part and ask for feedback, and then I'm going to go get help to make it better, I think is really profound. Mm. Can I I tweak your language a bit? Of course. So I, because I love metaphors and I, I, I think they're, they're very powerful. Wide awake at the wheel. There is so much going on when you're driving a car that to be completely aware will be to stop you from driving effectively. So automaticity, when performing an act like driving or therapy, where you don't have to consider every move you make at the moment you're performing is a good thing. But what you need to do is wake up after you've driven and before you drive to reflect on how I might do this better and differently especially with regard to the errors that you make. So being awake is going to be much more possible when you are not taxed by the many different demands on your attention while doing something complex like therapy or driving. Then you're going to have to rely on what you can do without tons of thought, that which you become proficient at doing. But doing that once you leave the therapy office, which is often advised, by the way. Think about how many times you've heard leave work at work. Big mistake. Don't leave work at work. When after work is when you should be thinking about your work. I think that's a really good point, And I appreciate the revision to the metaphor. That's a great point to reflect <laughs> on what we learned while driving. And absolutely, if we're spending so much time making sure that we're holding our hands at, at 10 and 2 o'clock, right. then maybe we're not actually being as effective. I think that's a great yeah. point. We have yeah. we have some things that are automatic that we're doing. And, and to your prior point, we should keep doing those. We don't yeah. want to stop doing the things that are working while trying to get better at the things that aren't. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's a great, if you're so obsessed with 10 and 2 on the wheel, you might miss the fact that the kid's running out from between two cars. I have a feeling we could keep going on this metaphor. <laughs> hmm. So Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I know this has been illuminating for me and I imagine for our listeners as well. Please again, tell us where listeners can go to learn more about your work, to see some of this research and also to learn about feedback informed treatment since it's really um, the application of a lot of the research you're talking about. Thanks. And it is research in in application. I I like that term. I I do a blog about once every other week at scottdmiller.com. There are hundreds of blog posts now that sort of trace the evolution of these ideas, and I'm constantly updating the blog with new new research findings. So that's one of the best places to go. You can email me via the blog. I hope you'll, you'll subscribe to the blog. I'm not going to spam you uh, with advertisements for books. It's just used to keep you aware when the blog is, is updated. The second place is the ICCE, the International Center for Clinical Excellence. It's Center for clinicalexcellence.com. That's a place to go where you can meet and get support from lots of people that are trying to apply these ideas. Loads of free articles uh, and videos on both sites uh, that you can take advantage of. And it is, like you say, a bit of a wormhole. You can, you can start down this and then you see how it connects to lots of other things 
and pretty soon, like uh, my son on YouTube, who spent hours uh, looking at it. Um, so it's a slow process. Deliberate practice is a marathon, not a race. Beware anybody promising you a shortcut. And I hope to connect with you uh, personally in the future uh, as you as you try to apply the ideas to your own work. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, please keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing, and we will definitely direct our listeners to continue following you. Thank you again. My pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.